every so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Brian Hyde. Welcome to the Disciples of Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde, and this is the America Out Loud Network. All right, I hope you're feeling up to it. I hope you're feeling froggy today, because I've got some stuff to share with you that is is going to push a little bit beyond the bounds of comfort. And I'm not doing this because I'm smarter than you, or I'm not doing it because I think you need to be fixed. I'm doing it because all of us, at least those of us who, if, if you value truth, if you are a person who wants to stay tethered to reality, you want to, to have as much truth by which to, to chart your course through life, you've got your work cut out for you. This is a time of incredible deception and manipulation, and, and I want to think, you know, as, as much as anybody else, oh, but as long as I'm aware, I'm above this manipulation. Truth of the matter is, though, if I can be a little bit humble and be perfectly honest, now, I'm subject to it as well. And it frustrates me when I find out, oh, my gosh, they pulled my chains and I jumped and screamed just like they wanted me to. So in that regard, I've got a couple of things I'd like to share with you today that will help push those limits, help you recognize some things that perhaps you haven't thought about before. I want to start with something that I hope we would mostly be in agreement on, and that is that the mask hysteria that we've had imposed on us over the last couple of years has thankfully come to an end. And this is with a federal judge that uh, has has said, hey, the CDC does not have authority to enforce masks on public transportation, on airlines, trains, buses, etc. And, of course, immediately there was concern, right, because the mask hysteria runs deep. And for some people, this is a terrible threat that what, what we won't be able to tell people what to do. We won't be able to dominate other people based on whether or not they're wearing that outward symbol of compliance. It's very threatening to them. I mean, I'm, I'm trying hard not to you know say that they're dumb for, for thinking so or they're evil for thinking so. But clearly it bothers them that other people will be able to exercise their own volition, their own choice as to whether or not they mask up. You know, it's, I, I don't know, how do you communicate to somebody? Look, if you want to wear a mask, wear it. Go ahead. Nobody is going to stop you. In fact, I'm not even going to give you a bad time for it. Now, I might think in my heart, oh, that poor dude or that poor lady, you know, for for being so so beaten into that sense that where I have to show how good a person I am by this outward symbol of obedience. But I'm not going to say something to them. I'm not going to confront, confront them and make their life harder. 
In other words, I'm willing to live and let live. But see, for, for the people who are the true believers, the, the last disciples of the mask cult, it's very threatening. Because when other people say, well, I'm not going to put it back on, suddenly their beliefs are being you know challenged in, in some way. I want to share with you an article by uh, Jordan Schachtel. This is from his dossier substack. It's titled, Here Lies the Mask Cult, 2020 to 2022. And I know the White House at one point uh, was, or at least somebody was saying, well, the Department of Justice is going to appeal this judge's decision that struck down, you know, again, on procedural grounds or at least on, on jurisdictional grounds, the CDC does not have authority to tell people you have to wear masks like this. And for a time, there was a question over the last few days, well, is, is it going to be appealed? Is it going to be kicked to a different court? Well, the CDC has shrugged. The White House has said, that's up for other people to figure out or to think of. Bottom line, according to Jordan Schachtel, is one of the most ridiculous cults in human history has reached terminal velocity. In fact, he says, in my view, the mask regime is officially dead and buried. Now, in many of our day-to-day lives, at least those of us who live in free states, the mask has already become a complete afterthought. Unless you happen to be entering an airplane or a doctor's office, there has long been no reason to have a mask signal in your possession. Still, the act of donning the cloth remained a humiliating ritual for those of us who believe in human freedom. It served as a reminder of the continuing power of the safety regime. And moreover, it reminded us of the countless millions of lives ruined by our government as these power-drunk actors and propagandists employed COVID-mania defense measures purportedly designed to fight a virus. So Jordan Schachtel says, look, the mask is many things. It's a political virtue signal. It's a sign of obedience, a tool for enhanced compliance, a shaming mechanism, a sign of a superiority or inferiority complex and a constant reminder of the inhumanity of our ruling class. It had nothing to do with the science. So in order for humanity to thrive, the mask cult had to meet its demise. And the airplane was the last stand for the mask cult. And on Monday, a federal judge struck down the CDC's unconstitutional airplane mask order, which, like virtually everything else related to COVID mania, was justified by pure quackery. And within hours, every airline in America waived their mask requirement, as did rideshare companies rather like like Uber. Now, in a rare instance of accurately reading the room, the White House didn't even bother contesting the judicial order. That says a lot. But the last disciples of the mask cult remain its most loyal. Here's Valerie Jarrett masked up and saying, I'm wearing my mask no matter what non-scientists tell me what I can do. Okay, well, you do you, girl. (laughs) Nobody's going to stop you. Just don't try to impose it on everybody else. Jordan Schachtel says, For some time into the future, the coastal elites and the compliant class will continue to seethe about Americans being allowed to make decisions based on their own individual health assessments. The true believers of the mask cult will continue to mask signal until finally they quietly accept the stupidity of continually wearing a soiled piece of cloth on your face and labeling it a scientific, sanitary endeavor. I mean, look at a couple of these tweets he includes. I will not be flying Alaska Air until they reinstate public safety measures against COVID-19. Here's another one. Imagine celebrating the deaths of a small number of kids so that you don't have to wear a mask on a plane. What happened to decency? 
Jordan Schachtel says the destruction of the mask cult was undoubtedly expedited by the handful of fearless scientists, reporters, and activists who persevered despite being targeted by the COVID mania mob. Now he says, I don't want to start dropping names here because I'll definitely miss, uh, miss someone who was very important to this fight. But he says, I want to thank every single one of you for fighting the good fight. You know, I, I saw a clip. Somebody had shared this on Twitter earlier today. And, and I, I want to memory hold this stuff. I want to repress these memories just because this is so aggravating and even painful to consider that we were at this stage. But it was from a funeral. I believe it was in uh, the fall of 2020. And you remember the lockdown mania, of course, we can't have you go in and visit grandma in the nursing home. We can't, uh, you know, have you visit a loved one in the hospital. Even if they were dying and not of COVID, you know, the, the lockdown ideals were so stringent, you just can't do this. Even funerals. I know more than a couple of people who canceled or postponed. Their loved one said, there will be no funeral. Why? Because of fears of COVID. Okay. But here was this video of a funeral taking place. I don't remember where it was. I just remember seeing the, the video a couple of years ago. And this poor mother sitting on the front row, everybody's spaced out, right? They're socially distanced. There's plenty of space between the mourners. They're all masked up. Of course, the funeral home has got, to, you know, the funeral director all masked up as well. And this poor mother sitting there on the front row, I believe it was her husband had passed away. She's sitting there grieving six feet away from her nearest loved one. And as she is grieving, her son, recognizing her need for support, picks up his chair and moves it over and sits next to her and puts his arm around her. And here comes the funeral director. I mean, just lickety split. Now you can't do that and instruct him. You have to move this out of the way. You have to go back and socially distance or we're going to cancel this, this service right here and now. That is far from the only petty act of totalitarianism that, that typified the, uh, you know, COVID masking mandate mindset. And it's, it's discouraging to think that we ever allowed ourselves to get to that point. Now, here's the funny thing. I'm, I'm actually headed to go attend a funeral this weekend. And uh, I, I had the opportunity to attend another funeral. This would have been probably spring of 2021. And, you know, th- at that time, there, there was great concern on the part of family members, well, is everybody going to be masked up? And, of course, even to sign the, the guest book at the funeral home. You know, we have sanitized pens versus unsanitized pens and so forth. And I, I get it. They're, they're trying to do what they can. But the concern was so extreme. And at one point, a group of us stood together, family members, and just took a picture. We hadn't been together for a long time. We would missed one another. There'd been a lot of isolation. And uh, a, another family member, you know, a cousin, chimed in, hey, where's everybody's mask? And they were outraged. How dare you people sit there and try to expose one another? And I thought, why? All the unnecessary drama. So now that things have kind of returned to normal, I don't want to make it sound like, we we got a funeral to go to, but I'm looking forward to this funeral much more than I was the, the previous one, just because I know that masks are not going to be an issue. Social distancing is not going to be an issue. And I think that we're going to get back something that we've been missing for a while. And I just pray that this stays buried. 
I think that we saw some truly psychopathic behavior come out on behalf of some people. And psychopaths will sometimes give the victim a little reprieve before they return to the torture with even more enthusiasm. I pray that's not the case. I pray they're not looking at Shanghai and going, that's what we need to be doing. It's so inhumane. So, if that pushes you a little bit on your your sense of um, comfort versus discomfort, I'd like to push just a little bit harder. None of us wants to believe we could be easily manipulated by propagandists. And if you're brave enough to put that to the test, I want to share with you a commentary from The Good Citizen titled The Enemy of My Enemies, Contemplating a Moral Dilemma in Our Multipolar World. Now, this has to do with the fact that right now we are forbidden to speak of Vladimir Putin at all these days without wrapping both sides of his name with sufficient admonishments of venomous slander. And anyone who doesn't pledge their immediate allegiance to the fashionable and misguided present hysteria either against the man or 150 million Russians will be considered prima facie an apologist at best and a traitor at worst. So they say he's a demon, a scoundrel, a war criminal, a cosmic accident sent to destroy democracy and all that's good and noble, which, of course, only derives from the good and noble nations of the West claiming to still be democratic. Sixty years ago, they also said that by now cars would fly. There would be no more wars. Liberal democracy would shepherd us from evil and not morph into the evil it proclaimed to dispel. Thirty years ago was supposed to be the end of history. So they say that Putin is our enemy. The reason they keep repeating it ad nauseum is that they know millions will believe it. And those who incessantly level these charges, without irony, apparently lack any self-awareness or a mirror. Perhaps all they have are mirrors and they can only make dark accusations based on their own reflections. Now, the good citizen says we used to expect so much of our enemies with a minimum prerequisite being they behaved as such. And yet here we are, millions still believing the unbelievable, a new prepackaged promo kit of the present thing delivered with the usual, usual historical inconsistencies and logical fallacies, while millions more watch this charade repeat in disbelief. If we've learned anything from Western governments in their quest to inflame a new Cold War with Russia and now a new world war with both Russia and China, it's that they can't be trusted about anything. So if they point in a direction and say, look, be outraged, it's your enemy. The only thing more outrageous than the cartoonish nature of their sloppy programming attempts is that they seem to work because not enough people stop and ask why. So in Sun Tzu's The Art of War, one of his five constants of warfare is the moral law. This is how he states it, quote, The moral law causes the people to be in complete accord with their ruler, so that they will follow him regardless of their lives, undismayed by any danger. The consummate leader cultivates the moral law and strictly adheres to method and discipline. End quote. Now the good citizen says, A nation or people bound to their leaders by strong foundations and principles, rooted in justification for a righteous conflict, whether in attack, defensive attack, diversion, or defense, will be more likely to find success. It requires the people to be in complete accord with their ruler. Now, does this sound like NATO? Does the moral law exist in any nations of the West that just concluded two years of psychologically abusing, if not outright murdering, their own citizens? Does it exist in the drunken empire of the West that's been at war with the world and its own people for decades? Wars used to require some foundation for public acceptance. 
Sun Tzu could hardly have imagined the ability of governments to manipulate and gaslight their own warriors to sacrifice for ennoble aims. Now all conflict requires is, first and foremost, a good public relations campaign. People want to feel like their side has a clear conscience about things. It never really matters whether the information that relieves the conscience is based on truth. They want a sense of moral high ground, even if that ground is built of straw. They seek to be on the right side of history, even if that side is objectively clouded in ambiguities and contradictions. So the point here is, governments of the West have given up on the moral law a long time ago. They do as they please toward aims they are never honest about with those who entrusted their governance. Moral governance seems like a contradiction in itself. And with no moral ground of any discernible kind to stand on, we're still supposed to believe what we're told by our unscrupulous leaders about Russia and Putin. And here, the good citizen says, let's, let's play a game. It's called Russia or the West. So, I'm going to read you a series of statements, and you tell me which one does this apply to, Russia or the West. Political prisoners are held without trial, accused of being against the regime. Rampant censorship. State-controlled media works for the regime. Kangaroo committees go after political opponents. Secret police for internal coups and crushing regime opposition. Election rigging. Shutting down protests of one political nature while allowing others. Unequal protection under the law. Oligarchy posing as democracy. Fascism posing as liberalism. Racism, sexism, child grooming, and bigotry disguised as state-mandated tolerance or education, with corporations of all industries colluding with the state to carry out all of the above. So how would you answer those? Well, the correct answers are both, mostly, with the exception of the last three which are exclusively American. Now, the past two years alone, or 30 to 60 years for us older horses, have revealed where the real enemies of Western citizens are. And you know what? They don't appear to be in Russia. The Canadian government declared an emergency against peaceful working class protesters to seize their bank accounts and assets after stealing $12 million in charitable fundraising money from two corporations that do crowdfunding. Was that Putin? How about the Australian government? setting up camps and forcing healthy citizens to quarantine in isolation under the watchful eye of guards and health functionaries. If they escaped, they were arrested and charged with felonies. Now, this was before citizens were blasted with directed energy weapons by Canberra police for daring to exercise their basic human rights of protesting tyrannical vaccine mandates. The entire nation of Australia was a prison island for two years. Old Habits. The Greek government is stealing money from pensioners who refuse the useless and deadly vaccines. Italy is following Greece. The European Union is withholding billions from the Hungarian people because it doesn't like who they voted for two weeks ago. U.S. hospitals have refused life-saving transplants to patients that are unvaccinated and even to children whose parents haven't received the clot shots. It hasn't been one instance. It has been dozens. So again... Did Putin force those hospital administrators toward such evil actions? I know, the answer makes me uncomfortable too, but it is what it is. And the good citizen points out, the enemies of Western people are sitting in their parliaments and high offices working as enforcers in their police departments. 
They jump from corporate boards to government bureaucracies. They work for a coordinated global technocracy that seeks to engineer chaos and conflict to subjugate and depopulate most of humanity before they're technologically engineered for a post-version of our species. And again, did Putin force those governments to terrorize their own citizens? Was Putin involved in the laboratory, in funding the laboratory in Wuhan? Does Russia have over 300 experimental bioweapons labs in locations around the world that could threaten those countries hosting them with catastrophic consequences? The frequency of engineered global catastrophes requires adherence to the prescribed solutions by engineers of said catastrophes. It's the equivalent of civilizational arsonists returning with the fire brigade and expecting to be greeted by the civilization as heroes. When the applause subsides, they quickly guide the grateful and unworthy peasants whom they're sorry did not perish in the fire on toward the next civilization they've already prepared behind their globalist golden curtains. Now, in the case of our civilizational arsonists presently taking flamethrowers to any sources of stability in the West, they're keen to destroy food supplies inflate energy costs through shortages, and engineer a new breed of carbon-neutral consumers in the aftermath. They want to move us to smart-grid sustainable cities where nobody will own cars or much of anything, and will live nearly full-time in an artificial digital universe as interchangeable avatars that get molested at discos by creepy crash-test-dummy-looking Zuckerberg clones. Now, when the VR headsets come off, it will be for dental appointments or to consume sustainable bug larvae with the slide of injectable graphene hydroxide, a side of hydro- injectable high- graphene hydroxide to amplify the 7G signals, incinerating any remnants of our highly evolved species. Perhaps a highly evolved species would never submit to the terms of their own slavery and willingly accept it at the expense of their own liberty, their autonomy, their right to self-determination. But the question that seems to be making the rounds across various podcasts and newsletters is hardly ever answered. Where is Putin in all of this? We're told Ukraine is giving Russia a hard time. That according to the Ukrainian government's own believable figures, Russia is getting routed and slaughtered even on the battlefield. Their morale is so low that entire divisions are surrendering to the Ukrainians. Putin has resorted to putting old and retired soldiers back into action, some with 19th century rifles. And yet each day that we are fed these tall tales, we're also treated to the cocaine comic Zelensky's tireless begging of Western governments on Zoom. If he doesn't get billions in more money and more weapons this instant, Ukraine and democracy itself will die forever. The pathetic desperation is not just a contradiction to his own government's claims of battlefield success. It's an insult, an embarrassment to watch so many millions of assimilated, unthinking Westerners eat it up like sugar-coated, life-saving mRNA gummies. Each day the Western propagandists make new assertions that contradict the previous day's contradictions of a previous assertion. It continues ad nauseum until the last Ukrainian is dead in the noble undertaking of keeping Putin bogged down in a nation nobody in power in the West cares about any more than they care about their own electorates they've been selected to govern. We are sold democracy as the superior form of top-down governance, and the Western students of selective history would hardly find it disagreeable. Throw the word liberal in front of democracy, and we're all supposed to get weak in the knees with visions of joy and salvation. Putin is supposed to be anti-liberal democracy, and if so, well then that's a good thing based on what liberal democracy presently looks like across the West. Those not subsumed by the present hysteria, 
say Putin cares about his citizens and wants to restore a common culture with religious foundational views to maintain social stability. In the words of Swedish autistic marionette, (laughs) the autistic marionette of global climate catastrophes, how dare he? Putin's own words from speeches in his written piece last summer on the historical unity of Russians and Ukrainians reveal a man with a vast historical knowledge and understanding of Russia's sphere of influence going back centuries. A Western propagandist claim he wants to reinstitute the Soviet bloc, but he's never said anything even remotely close to this. He detests the Bolsheviks, has a reverence for Imperial Russia and the Russian Orthodox Church, and expressed open sadness for the breaks between Ukraine and Russia that occurred last century under Soviet rule and at the hands of a post-Soviet globalist order. Are you brave enough to continue with me in the next segment? All right, stick around. This is the Disciples of Liberty on the America Out Loud Network. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is McCullough Report. Are you tired of your tired vitamins? Consider Healthy Cell. These are pill-free vitamins that are in convenient gel packs. Uh, I like the Focus and Recall supplement. I use this a lot. You know, your brain uses a lot of energy and it depends on a variety of micronutrients and vitamins. Boost your short-term focus and long-term brain power with Healthy Cell's Focus and Recall Vitamins. So go to HealthyCell.com, use the code OUTLOUD, all capital letters, OUTLOUD for a 20% off your first order of any Healthy Cell product. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. In 2008, the amount of concentrated time people could spend on a task without becoming distracted was 12 seconds. Five years later, it was only eight seconds, one second less than a goldfish. If you find yourself always distracted or having trouble recalling information, you're likely to fall behind in the demanding, fast-paced 21st century. In other words, brain performance is more critical now than ever. Boost your brain power with Healthy Cells Focus Plus Recall. Science-backed nootropics to sharpen focus, concentrate longer, enhance recall, improve mental speed, learn rapidly, and be more alert. It's a pill-free brain supplement made with maximum absorption technology designed to feed our brains at the cellular level. Take it for a test drive. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Focus Plus Recall. That's HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 20% off. silent voices be heard. It was the rallying call that started it all. It's a wide spectrum of programming, from world and political news to societal and cultural stories. Six amazing years of news blogs, informative podcasts, and great talk radio. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. In today's world, there's no escaping the headlines filled with warnings about emerging viruses and dangerous superbugs. Genesis is the only technology that safely and effectively obliterates harmful pathogens both on the air and on surfaces. Genesis plus HOCL neutralize these threats to your environment in just seconds. Find out more about this amazing technology at genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a 15% discount. With Genesis, you'll be prepared for what's next. Into 
Welcome back to the Disciples of Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde, and this is the America Out Loud Network. You know, I know, I was pushing hard in the last segment, at least uh, for, for a lot of people, myself included, bumping up against the limits of our mental universe, and and it's it's uncomfortable. Because I'm sharing this piece from the Good Citizen substack about uh, the enemy of my enemies. And I have to point this out, even though you probably don't need this. It's it's not this is not a piece defending Putin as, you know, the the savior of mankind and, you know, the the leader you should look to in today's world. But it's definitely calling into question all these pronouncements and the insistence that you must be outraged at Putin and what Russia is doing, as opposed to noticing what your own Western leaders are doing to you and have been doing to you for some time. Don't you think there's something just a little bit fishy there? What I'm suggesting is it's it's entirely possible to look at uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and go, hey, that's wrong. Without ceding, you know, the moral high ground to your own leaders who are busy doing you dirty with a smile on their faces. Going to come back to the article here. The Good Citizen says, Putin has watched the United States with unashamed hostility meddle in Ukraine's affairs in an attempt to win them over toward the EU and NATO's sphere of influence. Now, that's a consistent red line Putin had established through much of that previous decade. His own words reveal him to be the opposite of most Western leaders, and they detest him for that. The MIC and Intel communities have been targeting him since reset relations failed in 2011, and Putin dared to undermine CIA bear-poking operations in Georgia and regime change operations in Syria. Now the world finds itself at a crossroads on the precipice of a greater conflict. And there are two camps forming on Putin and Russia. The first says that Putin is still part of the Western globalist order and just playing his role on the world stage as a dedicated villain. Now, the evidence that contradicts this, such as the World Economic Forum cutting ties with Russia and the entire economic West punishing Russia, is all apparently just part of a scripted play. Everything you see is part of the play, and they're all in on it together, even Putin. Now, the second camp says we're in a multipolar world now, with two distinct sides forming, and Russia and Putin are not on the side of World Economic Forum Western globalist technocratic social engineers. The first camp says those who believe there are any distant, distinct, meaningful sides forming in the world order are fooling themselves. Now, the good citizen says if Putin is a serious man who says what he means and then acts on his stated intentions, as we've seen for 20 years, then it appears there's been a shift away from any globalized coordinated efforts. China and Russia appear to be retreating toward national self-preservation against an increasingly belligerent empire that seeks to weaponize its currency and continue to force countries to bend to its will. And the U.S. is threatening those that dare side with Russia. They're openly warning India from increasing bilateral commodities trading in rubles, while outright orchestrating a soft coup in Pakistan against Imran Khan for daring to be friends with Putin. The Empire of Lies recently strong-armed Serbia in the United Nations vote to remove Russia from the Human Rights Council which has seen countries like China and Saudi Arabia lead to the laughable outfit. Janet Yellen still thinks she has the, the economic power to threaten China for siding with Russia, while China still owns a substantial portion of U.S. debt and probably a good number of its elected leaders as well. Derek Chollett, State Department Counselor. China, if it were to seek to evade the sanctions or somehow dividing the sanctions, they would be vulnerable. 
Any country that tries to evade these sanctions will also face the consequences of its actions. I don't want to speculate with what that would be. So Beijing's been pretty clear in its support for Russia, going so far as to denounce the Western sanctions as illegal. Here's Liu Pengyu, spokesman for the Chinese embassy in Washington, who said last week, China firmly opposes all illegal unilateral sanctions and believes that sanctions are never fundamentally effective means to solve problems. So countries around the world are watching a drunken empire behave like their usual mafioso selves on the world stage, but something is very different this time. They're seeing this and finally standing up to the paper tiger. They see gold and oil-backed Russian rubles and a BRICS partnership moving away from the American monopoly on energy, finance, and geopolitical order giving. And they see a group on they see a group on the rise to counter the petrodollar that was historically weaponized for what mafias do best to make offers nobody could refuse. This shift in the global order and what some economists are calling Bretton Woods three could see the U.S. dollar quickly fall from grace. If countries divest from U.S. treasuries and U.S. dollar reserves and OPEC countries go rogue and begin accepting euros or yuan or rubles instead of dollars, as China and Saudi Arabia appear to be doing, it is the beginning of the end of the U.S. empire. And what we know about all empires is they never really go quietly toward the fading light. They often behave like rabid cornered animals needing to lash out in unpredictable and dangerous ways. This is what we're seeing now with the U.S., which has completely hijacked the EU and NATO to be its mafia enforcers. The empire of lies will bring down all those who align with them in their final death throes that look more and more like the makings of World War III. What better way to reset things than another war on European soil? But perhaps burning down Europe won't be enough. NATO's talking about moving to the Asian sphere of influence on behalf of its empire controllers. An organization purpose-built to counter the Soviet Union in 1965 wants to move to Asia. Sweden and Finland are months away from joining NATO, despite not seeing a reason to join for the entirety of the 50-year of the 50-year Cold War and the global arms race. Both Sweden and Finland are ruled by World Economic Forum regime puppets. Hmm. Poland is now preparing 100 tanks as a gift to the cocaine comic and will be rewarded with 100 U.S. tanks to replace them. Slovakia has sent missile defense systems. Czechia sent rusty old tanks. Every shipment that crosses the Polish border into Ukraine should be immediately bombed to smithereens by Russia. And they have every right to take that action, having constantly warned NATO to stay out of the conflict. There are even U.S. troops, British commandos, and French special forces embedded with Nazis in Mariupol and near the Donbass. Russia's Chechen special forces have captured at least one American alive. It will be interesting to see if the U.S. even acknowledges this or completely ignores it and lets him rot in a Russian prison. Don't expect Francis Gary Powers' U-2 treatment for this poor Nazi collaborating collaborating schmuck. Italian, French, and Spanish journalists embedded with Ukrainian forces have all announced to their native country's media the exact same story. American forces are on the ground and calling all the shots. World, World War III has already begun, and it was the Western Empire of bloodthirsty hyenas that did everything they could to make it happen. Putin warned them year after year after year to stop poking the bear. They ignored him. Now they think they can blame him for their belligerence. And this brings us back to the man himself, the enemy of our enemies. The man has shown incredible patience since the U.S.-backed coup in Kiev in 2014. 
and the resulting slaughter of ethnic Russians on its border. The empire continues to antagonize Russia by sending billions more in weapons to the Nazis of the Ukraine, happy to fight Russia down to the last Ukrainian, no matter how long it takes. Nobody in the West, other than Macron, who's just performing for French voters during an election, is talking about peace or a ceasefire through meaningful negotiations. And frankly, it's probably too late for all that. The cocaine comic had his chance, and he followed his mafia masters toward the darkness, willing to sacrifice his people and country for a belligerent empire and its billions in free money. NATO stooge Jen Stoltenberg said earlier this week that the needlessly antagonistic terror organizers, nice acronym there, are going to move operations right up to Russia's border. What's that if not an open declaration for more war? They say in chess the best move is what your opponent least wants you to make. And there are several reasons for this. It has a psychological advantage in throwing your opponent off their plan, And if it's a strong positional move, it will also have strategic advantages in the game. But there's also another move in amateur chess, the one your opponent never sees coming. Is it possible the U.S. amateurs never saw the consequences of their sanctions on Russia coming back to cripple Western economies? Did they intentionally want to cause economic catastrophe and commodities inflation by destroying the dollar's hegemony? Or did Putin outsmart them by pegging the ruble to gold and oil? a move that arrogant elitists in the District of Corruption never saw coming. Are they all really just performing in one global stage play? I suppose we can all act like that's still true. Americans have become so enthralled with the richest man in the world buying an old dying bird in an attempt to restore free speech to a platform that's best left to die and disappear forever. They cling to every tweet of Elon Musk, who has billions in contracts with the U.S. government and military. They believe he is the enemy of our enemies. He has the money, the pop culture clout, the same passport as them, and makes the illiberal mobs of emotionally unstable bedwetters hysterical. And yes, that's always amusing and fun. But the real enemy of our enemies is in Moscow. And the U.S. government is trying so desperately to topple him to keep its unipolar geopolitical monopoly of power, which means he's not reading their scripts or acting in their global stage plays anymore. He's not moving the pieces on the chessboard they demand of him. A few photos of Putin and Davos over the years mean nothing. He's against their order and working for Russians and Russia alone. The king's gambit is over. The world is quickly moving toward multipolar middle game. The West wants more war, endless war, maybe even world war or nuclear war, judging by their incessant belligerence and absence of any pretense to moral anything. That makes them the real danger to humanity along with the globalist cabal of technocrat Malthusian psychopaths they support. If our true enemies are our own leaders and governments who have declared war on us, then the real enemy of our enemies is Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. And it's time to say openly without apologies what scholars of effective warfare have known for centuries. The enemy of my enemies is my friend. Now, I'll grant you, that's pretty provocative. But this is one of the things I like about the Good Citizen Substack. Is I can encounter points of view there that are not sanitized for my protection and otherwise, you know, uh, filtered through the fact checkers and, and uh, the correct thought police as to whether or not this is something that you and I are allowed to consider. So please understand, I share this with you, not with the understanding that you are going to, uh, you're going to hear this and you're going to immediately nod your head and say, yep, that is exactly correct. It's up to you what you do with this information. 
If you reject it out of hand, that's that's fine. But the most important thing that I see the good citizen doing with this particular essay is causing people to really question why. The same people who clamored to lock you down for two years are the ones pointing their fingers at Russia and saying, you need to be outraged at them. And if you're not qualifying everything you say about them with how bad and evil they are, then somehow you are suspect and you're probably a traitor and probably working for them. Why would they say that? Why is it so essential that our attention be focused on someone who may very well be a bad person? but is not the person who is posing the greatest threat to your liberty, to your safety, to your well-being. I mean, I could be dead wrong. It's happened before. But something here doesn't add up. And I'm so grateful for writers like The Good Citizen for pointing this out and at least providing the opportunity to question that narrative and see if maybe there is a a different vantage point that can offer a more complete view of what's going on. It's not a matter so much of just having all the right answers right there at the tip of your tongue. It's about being able to ask the right questions that will hopefully lead you to a better understanding of what's really at stake. So if you find it provocative, no, you're not alone. (laughs) It's, It's meant to be. But sometimes it's a good thing to step outside the conventional wisdom and start asking some tough questions. Questions that uh, that cause discomfort. Never thought I would see the day that I would say this, but much or much less believe it, but when I'm experiencing cognitive dissonance, trying to hold two contradictory thoughts simultaneously, and I recognize the discomfort that that cognitive dissonance is causing, it's actually a good thing. A lot of people tend to just rationalize it away. Well... You know, who am I? I don't know how to explain this. I just, I guess it's just beyond my ability to understand. No, you can understand it. But if it's making you uncomfortable, perhaps it requires a little bit deeper contemplation. On that note, let's shift gears to another topic. By far, the most daunting problems that most of us are facing here at home are economic in nature. Got a great article here from Brandon Smith from um, Alt dash market.us basic solutions to our economic economic problems that establishment elites won't allow i love this because he not only correctly identifies a lot of the problems but he also identifies what many of the solutions could be except for the fact that uh, the people in power cannot countenance the idea that uh, we would enact any of these solutions because it would rob them of power over us Here's how Brandon Smith puts it. He says, I think one of the great misconceptions about economic crisis is that solutions are always dependent on centralized government action. In truth, most financial disasters are actually caused by too much government action and involvement. Central banks like the Federal Reserve are also primary culprits, as he outlined in last week's article, uh, their machinations, which are independent of government oversight and fall into the category of deliberate sabotage. The Fed bankrolls corruption through fiat money creation, while government officials and corporations utilize that money to wreak havoc on our living standards. Ending the Fed would solve the fiat money problem, but there's still a host of agenda-driven politicians and bureaucrats to deal with before our nation can right the ship. One clear way to fix our system would be to first force government to interfere less. Now, as a point of reference, consider the common media narrative surrounding the COVID pandemic. 
Along with the White House, the media has been the premier driver of irrational fear over the spread of COVID, which ended up being a minor threat compared to the hype as the average infection fatality rate was no more than 0.27%. Yet in response to a virus that was a mortal danger to less than one-third of 1% of the population, bureaucrats declared a national emergency requiring insane and unconstitutional lockdowns. The lockdowns damaged the economy in ways that people are only now beginning to comprehend, with hundreds of thousands of small businesses lost across the country. And not only that, but the establishment responded to the economic implosion they created by printing over $6 trillion in new money through the Fed in 2020 alone. This helicopter money, or beta test for universal basic income, has expedited a stagflationary disaster and helped to push prices on necessities to 40-year highs. That's according to the official number. Now, the media claims it's COVID causing the crash, but this is a lie. It was the response to COVID that is causing the crash. The virus was incidental to the economic sabotage initiated by governments and central banks. As we saw in conservative red states that defied the lockdowns and the vax mandates, economic activity thrived while leftist blue states suffered. And what did these blue states get in return for their economic sacrifices? Nothing. COVID infections continued to rage in blue states and deaths often outpaced red states with similar-sized populations. In other words, the lockdowns, the mask mandates, the attempts to force vaccinations through medical tyranny saved zero lives and possibly made things worse. This is the legacy of government micromanagement. And yes, let's not forget that Trump went along with these lockdowns in the beginning of the pandemic also. Biden is just the dirtbag that continued the measures despite the massive amount of evidence that they don't work. And while the COVID event illustrates my point in a big way, says Brandon Smith, there are a lot of deeply rooted problems that government intervention has caused that add up to one big fiscal calamity. Now, many of these threats require a basic but sweeping return to fundamentals that government elites will rarely address and will try to stop at all costs. So here are just a few examples. Inflation and stagflation. Okay, those are real problems. Back the dollar with hard commodities for the solution. He says the Federal Reserve and their minions have spent the better part of a century trying to convince the public that a gold standard for our currency is what caused the Great Depression and what could cause future depressions. They claim that limitations on money printing strangle liquidity and disrupt velocity. This is a lie. Former Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke openly admitted in 2002 in a speech in honor of Milton Friedman that it was the central bank that actually caused the deflationary collapse of the 1930s, not the existence of the gold standard. This rare moment of truth from a Fed official was perhaps due to the sheer amount of evidence that Friedman often cited that contradicted the original anti-gold propaganda. Or maybe it happened because the banking elites did not see Friedman as a particular threat and figured no one among the public would read Bernanke's speech anyway. In fact, a commodities foundation held the American economy together for centuries until the Fed came along and governments slowly began removing gold from the picture. All subsequent economic crisis events have been exponentially worse ever since. When a commodity standard is employed, stability always follows. Just look at what happened in Russia recently. Their currency was on a downward spiral due to international sanctions. Yet when they reopened markets this past week, the ruble skyrocketed back to normal. Why? Because Putin had the currency coupled to gold. It's really that simple. 
The U.S. and parts of Europe are facing their own inflationary disasters, and this is largely due to the unchecked avarice of central bank stimulus and government spending. The only way to secure the dollar's existence as a stable store of wealth would be to back it with hard commodities like precious metals, among others. Now, this might kill the dollar's world reserve status because fiat printing would be impossible from that point on. But Brandon Smith says, I've got a newsflash for those that hate the idea of grounding the dollar in commodities. We're going to lose world reserve status anyway. And it's going to happen soon. One third of the world's population, including Russia, China and India, are already breaking from the dollar in bilateral trade. So the U.S. might as well accept this is the reality and prepare to mitigate the coming currency collapse by supporting the dollar with commodities. Okay, next problem, oil shortages and energy inflation. The answer is stop interfering with oil exploration. In early February of this year, the Biden administration made legal filings which halted new oil and gas leases, including exploration, due to conflicts over climate costs. This interference with America's oil independence is one of many instances, starting with Biden's sabotage of the Keystone Pipeline in 2021. Interestingly, with gas prices doubling ever since Biden entered office, the White House now claims they have nothing to do with energy inflation and are not preventing drilling in the U.S. Now, during the same period, Russia was establishing a decades-long oil and gas contract with China and laying the groundwork for a major pipeline to be finished by 2025. And yes, China does in fact have the capacity, along with Russia, to absorb most of the oil and gas that might be shunned by Europe should they follow through with energy sanctions. Russia was planning ahead while the U.S. was shifting from energy independence and net exporter status to once again becoming dependent on authoritarian regimes in the Arab world. Why? Well, Biden's excuse is usually climate alarmism. The Earth's temperature has only risen by one degree Celsius in the past 100 years. That's according to NOAA. So the main argument against oil production in the U.S. is based on the fallacy that man-made carbon has any bearing whatsoever on climate changes. But maybe the carbon fraud is just a distraction from something else. To fix any supply and demand issues in the U.S., we only need to start producing once again at levels that were easily obtainable in 2020. But what if the issue of supply contraction is not the main cause of oil inflation? Brandon Smith says, I would note that the dollar is not the only world reserve currency, but not only the world reserve currency, but it's also the global petro currency. Until recently, almost all oil was traded internationally using dollars. The decline or collapse of the dollar's buying power due to money printing and runaway inflation is more likely the direct cause of rising oil prices and supply issues are secondary. If the dollar was about to collapse due to inflation, oil would be one of the first early warning indicators. With the establishment blocking new oil production and hindering the most cost-effective method for oil transport, pipelines, an engineered decline in supply becomes a very effective smokescreen for the death of the dollar. The crisis caused by the government and the Federal Reserve's currency destruction could then be blamed on supply chain issues and climate peril. This is the reason why the establishment will not allow any future growth in U.S. oil production. They cannot allow the public to realize the precarious position our currency is in. So here's another problem. Supply chain interdependency leading to shortages. What should be done? How about bring back manufacturing? Brandon Smith says there are a lot of reasons why manufacturing has left the U.S. 
From greedy and corrupt labor unions driving up wages to higher taxes and land costs to extremely cheap shipping from overseas exporters. And there's also the theory that U.S. factories were outsourced to places like China in order to deliberately force the public into a global interdependency scheme. In other words, we are stuck with the supply chain we have, not because it's the best system, but because the globalists want it that way. Now, it's unlikely that the federal government and elitist establishment would ever allow real manufacturing to come back to the U.S. in a way that would make us more self-sufficient. As long as our country relies on outsourced goods and raw materials from other nations, we remain beholden to this global chain for our survival. Being completely independent might be impossible, but we could be producing far more domestically than we are today. State governments could create incentives to manufacture within their borders by removing property taxes, reducing state taxes, and protecting businesses from certain federal obstructions, such as carbon restrictions. As long as those companies do not support anti-freedom initiatives with the money they make, they should be aided so that real jobs and real production make a comeback in the U.S. He says, I would also note that if states want to survive the coming financial crisis that's about to strike, they're going to have to start ignoring federal restrictions on land use and the production of raw materials like oil or coal. Some environmental rules are good, but some are pointless and are only designed for control rather than to protect. States will have to stand in defiance of these rules if anything is going to change for the better. And finally, debt and liquidity crisis. How about this? Let states establish their own banks and currencies. The state of North Dakota has an interesting model for economic independence, which utilizes a state-sponsored bank designed specifically to help businesses in North Dakota. Now, he says, I would say it's bizarre that this idea has not become popular across the nation, but I understand that if it did the federal government and the central bankers would be very unhappy. Here's the thing. While it's true that the Constitution explicitly states the U.S. Treasury would be the only issuer of U.S. currency, this was done at a time when our currency was backed by gold and silver, and there was no corrupt middleman in the form of a central bank. In truth, the Treasury is now second fiddle to the Federal Reserve, and the constitutional regulations on money have already been broken, so it's time for a new currency model and a new banking model. An official bank in each state could decentralize power away from the Federal Reserve in terms of how debt and interest rates are handled, creating something closer to free market discovery of interest rates rather than a rate dictatorship control by the Fed. By extension, each state could also issue currency script legal for use only within the borders of those states. This would create a secondary safety net against inflation in the dollar. In other words, we decentralize the banking system and we offer state alternatives which function not so much as competing currencies, but as parallel or complementary currencies backed by and exchangeable in certain commodities. He says, I believe very strongly that this model, along with a couple dozen other measures I don't have space to cover here, could save our country from decades of economic mismanagement and bring us back from the brink of inflation and debt catastrophe. Now, states could do this without the permission of the federal government or the Federal Reserve, but he says, I have little doubt that the elites would be in an uproar. Make no mistake, states will have to move to decouple from the national financial system and build alternatives as soon as they realize that the dollar is tanking and stagflation is here to stay. And when they do, the establishment will declare such actions on par with insurrection. In the meantime... There are numerous preparations each individual can make in their local communities to insulate themselves from economic dangers. 
There are those who say that will say that local measures are just a stopgap. More national action needs to be taken, and they're partially correct. In the long run, there needs to be wider organization toward free markets once again, along with redundancies in state economies. In the short term, we must do what we can. And he says, ultimately, the most clear solutions to our fiscal fate are not pursued because the elite do not want to save the economy. At least not in a way that ends up with them having less power. They want even more power and centralization that extends beyond national boundaries into the realm of global management. Fixing the system can't happen because they won't let it happen. This means that the fix that will save us in the long run will be the one that allows all others to progress. And that fix is to remove these people from positions of influence and authority. You can't really repair the body in the wake of an illness until the offending disease is eliminated. So for now, all we can do is keep the country on life support until a cure is applied. You feeling a little more cognitive dissonance? <laughs> I know. I, it, it, this, this one pushes some buttons for me, too. But the solutions that Brandon Smith is advocating here, well, they certainly make sense. And I think he's right in, in pointing out that, you know, the elite absolutely wouldn't want this to happen. And as much as I want to believe, but state governments would have the backbone to stand up against this. Even some of the most conservative states that I can think of, particularly out west, Utah, Idaho, I'm looking your direction. They currently have governors who are very willing to bend the knee to the federal government. Not so much because they're, you know, national supremacists and feel like they have to genuflect to Washington, D.C., but... They really want that uh, federal funding. It's the carrot on the stick. They're just not willing to give it up, even if it would mean greater freedom for the people of those states. I'm Brian Hyde. This is the Disciples of Liberty on the America Out Loud Network.